Hi, this is Sarah Peretsky, and you're listening to Writer Types. Hi there, this is Ian Rankin. This is Attica Lark. Hi, this is Sophie Hanna. This is Rachel Housel Hall. This is Matthew Quirk. Oh, great question. I'm glad you picked up on that. You, you hit it exactly right there. This is Lee Child, and you're listening to Writer Types. Welcome to Writer Types. I am your host, Eric Beatner, and we have a packed show. Packed, I tell you. So let's get right into it. My first guest is Peter May, a best-selling author who grew up in Scotland but now lives in France. His latest book is called Lockdown, and get this, okay, it's about London under quarantine during a global pandemic. And that is the backdrop to a breathless thriller that takes place over just 24 hours. Uh, Peter is an accomplished writer of novels and TV, and apparently he can see the future because this book was actually written over a decade ago and sat in a drawer until right now. So here's my talk all the way from France with Peter May. Well, Peter, I am absolutely fascinated with your new book, Lockdown. Uh, This proves without a doubt that real life, even real life in the world we live in now, can't always compete with a writer's imagination. When you first wrote this years ago, nobody was interested. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm I'm classed as a crime writer. And um, at the time when I wrote this, the idea that a major Western capital city could be shut down by a virus seemed to editors and the literary establishment at the time uh, to be something more akin to science fiction or science fantasy. Um, so they, they really weren't interested, despite the fact that the book is actually, you know, a crime thriller. The backdrop, of course, was the London in lockdown. I uh, eventually had to give up and I put it away in a bottom drawer and forgot all about it. Wow. Well, then that brings us to the second thing that I absolutely love about this book being in the world is it proves how quickly publishing can move when it's really motivated. <laughs> so <laughs> walk us through this. I mean, you, you knew this book was there, but I guess you're, nobody else did. But then when you see the world uh, going crazy around us, you decided to to bring this out of the drawer. How, how did that come about? To be honest, I'd, I, you know, I had completely forgotten about it. I wrote it 15 years ago. I've written something like 15 or 16 books since then. Uh, so it really wasn't at the forefront of my thinking at all. And even when when, you know, the coronavirus came to pass, what was at the forefront of my mind was, how do I stay safe? Um, right. <laughs> you know, and, and we were all going into lockdown and somebody on my Twitter timeline posted and said, you know, why, why don't you uh, come up with a crime thriller set against the backdrop of the coronavirus? And I suddenly, you know, it was like a penny dropping, suddenly thought, wait a minute, <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> and I really just mentioned it by chance at the tail end of an email the conversation with my editor um and i think he just about fell off his chair um <laughs> and he said send send me the manuscript and that must have been about four or five o'clock in the evening seven o'clock the next morning i woke up and there was an email from him he had sat up and read this thing right through the night and he said wow. this is this is brilliant. We have to publish now. <laughs> now, is it a little bit depressing uh, to be so prescient? <laughs> um, well, it's actually something that seems to have dogged me through most of my writing career. You know, stuff I've written has a nasty habit of coming true, and not always in the, the most pleasant way. I, I wrote a series of China thrillers um 
I, I wrote about genetically modified rice, and about three, four years later, a brand of genetically modified rice suddenly appeared on the market. Oh, wow. Um, I wrote about a truckload of Chinese immigrants, illegal immigrants, being found dead in a lay-by in Texas. And lo and behold, what happened? Exactly that. Wow. You know, there, there are an extraordinary number of those coincidences. <laughs> I mean, they are coincidences. I'm not, you know, I'm not some kind of Latter-day Nostradamus. Um, <laughs> I hope uh, you mentioned it a little bit, but I, you know, we should say that the quarantine and sort of the lockdown of London is very much sort of the backdrop of this, and you wrap this thriller around it, having a backdrop that is in itself a threat. Did that amplify everything that happens? I mean, to me, it, it really is like if every step that, that's taken in this book by Jack has this heightened threat behind it because of the lockdown, because of the quarantine. And it's the kind of thriller that I love where you have the second layer. Is that something that you always sort of look for in your books? I, yeah, I mean, I, it's certainly location and background, backdrop, um, very important to me. I always think of location, for example, as being like another of the major characters in the book. You know, I mean, a, a story told in New York would be quite different from the way you would tell that same story if you set it in Paris, for example, um, right. you know, or Bombay or wherever. Um, so, so the setting is very important. And I think in this particular book, uh, affects absolutely every step of the detective's um, investigation. Uh, I mean, he's hindered in so many ways by his uh, lack of freedom of movement. You know, streets are deserted that, um, you know, he can't get hold of people. It's not easy to find people in this situation. And of course, it's all it's all so concentrated in a 24-hour period. So it has that very amplified under the microscope feel to it. Um, and a lot of it takes place during the hours of darkness, so, uh, you know, which also amplifies that sense of, background threat yeah well and, and that's what we do as writers right is what you got to find the obstacles that your character has to get through that that's usually the fun part is putting them under duress and then seeing how they could squirm out of it well, exactly right yeah that's one of the, the 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 most pleasurable aspects of writing is is um you know if you've if you've created characters that you feel and believe in and have empathy with then you put them into difficult or impossible sometimes situations they will respond in their own way you don't necessarily even control that as a writer it's a, it's a it's a strange organic kind of process so come up with a character that uh, you, you have to have a certain amount of love for and then just torture them. <laughs> yeah, something like that, yes. Okay. Sounds pretty mean, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> well, uh, you talked about location a little bit, so let's let's get into that. I mean, you have uh, written several s different series as well as uh, a number of standalones, you know, the, the Lewis trilogy, the Enzo Files, and as you mentioned, the China thrillers. Uh, so, you know, these are books set in Scotland, in France, in China. You yourself are obviously a Scotsman, uh, but now living in France. Uh, it sounds to me like you have trouble settling down. <laughs> you know, I've reached a certain age now where um, I'm quite happy to stay at home, but <laughs> I have spent much <laughs> of my life um, traveling, you know, largely for research. I mean, I, from Hong Kong and Malaysia and China and uh, Thailand to uh, all over the United States, Canada, um, many countries in Europe. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, I just, I think when I was a kid, I read um, 
these um, Tintin books. I don't know if you you get these in America, but Hergé's Adventures of Tintin, um, mm, yeah. kind of kind of comic book style things. I read, I loved them, lapped them up when I was a kid, and and the, these stories take place in you know exotic places all over the world. And uh, Hergé uh, had a team of researchers and always got his research absolutely spot on. And I, I think I've kind of absorbed that from him. Um, you know, I love to travel and I love to take my readers with me. And you like to visit every place you write about, yeah? You're, you're not content to just make it up. No, I like to go, uh, you know, I wouldn't write about a place that I haven't been to. I did a, a, a book which is going to be published again shortly called Virtually Dead, and it's set largely in a, a second life, you know, virtual world. So I actually spent a year in in Second Life with my own avatar, set up a detective agency and learned how to be a private eye. And that was fun and interesting. Well, I think your next challenge is you, you got to go big, think Mars or something. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> I'm getting too old for that kind of thing. Do you know, I might have been interested... 30 years ago, but I think uh, I think I'll keep my feet firmly rooted in uh, Mother Earth now. <laughs> well, now you've also had quite a prolific career in TV. I also work in TV. That, that's that's my day job. My books right. aren't necessarily paying the bills, but nearly every novelist I know is trying to break into TV. But you went the other way. Yeah, I broke out. <laughs> um, <laughs> It, it was, um, yeah, I was um, a screenwriter and latterly producer in television for uh, about 17 years. I mean, I think I think I clocked up about a thousand credits uh, during that time. Wow. It was, you know, I always wanted to make a living as a writer and um, and that was a good way to make a good living working in television. The, the ultimate aim was still to write books. And so I quit television in 1996 to try and make a, a go of it as a novelist. So now you're an expat living in France. Is that, does that give you a different perspective being, uh, you know, out of the comforts of home, shall we say? Or have you just been a wanderer all your life that anywhere you hang your hat is your home? <laughs> no, I'm actually a real home person. I mean, I um, this is very much my home. I mean, I've been in France full time for nearly 20 years now. Um, oh, wow. So this, this really does feel like home. Although I, I spend the winter months in the south of Spain. I have an apartment in the south of Spain, which is where I do my writing. Oh. It's 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 weird because with lockdown and everything, I've been forced to stay at home. I, I, I had to cancel a research trip to Svalbard, which is an archipelago in the Arctic Circle, about 800 miles from oh, the North yeah. Pole. Um, and I was supposed to be there in May and sadly had to cancel that. And that was research for the next book. So I've, I've also had to rethink that. I, can't, I, can't, I can no longer write that book. So I've had to, you know, adopt plan B. Now that's interesting because you're right. If, if you're unable to travel for the research, that sort of puts the brakes on whatever idea you've got spinning next. So that's, this, we, we might get a very interesting book out of you next time that uh, all takes place. <laughs> you're going to write a locked room mystery. <laughs> well, I'm going to write, it's going to be set here in France. Uh, most of the action will take place within about 15 or 20 minutes of where I live. And it's going to be it's it's going to be a two timeline thing. So, part of the story will be set during the Second World War, when um, the every uh, work of art and 
priceless painting was packed up and evacuated from the Louvre to keep them out of the hands of the Germans. Um, they actually oh, yeah. en- it, they ended up here um, in this in a chateau just along the road from me, which wasn't big oh, wow. enough, and th- there was overspill for some of the, these works of art and some of these huge big paintings. The canvases they'd taken them out the frames and rolled them up, and they ended up where I'm talking to you from right now is where there were about a, a dozen priceless paintings um, <laughs> stretched out from my studio where I'm sitting right out through the door and along the hall there. I mean, these massive tableaus. And it was discovering all that that kind of sparked the idea for this book. Oh, wow, that's excellent. See, that, that's a mark of a good writer is the ability to adapt to your situation. Right? <laughs> you have to adapt, yeah. <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, the one thing that's, that is a, a, a quandary at the moment is if you're writing right now, do you write the world as it is? I mean, does your story take place and your characters move around in a world which is in lockdown? Or right. or do you ignore that? Because, you know, by the time the book's published, you know, maybe this will all be history. Maybe we'll have found a vaccine and it'll, it'll all have passed into history. And so writing about uh, something that takes place in the world as it is now will seem dated <laughs> within a year. That's a real quandary. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, before I let you go, let's see if you can answer this for me. Is Should readers who read Lockdown, I mean, should this book give us hope for the end of this uh, quarantine? Or should this make us even more worried about the world we're in now? Uh, uh, well, uh, I mean, Lockdown's a pretty dark story. Um, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have a very uplifting ending. Um, I think the thing that, that people should take from it is that Coronavirus is bad, but it could have been much, much worse um, because, you know, in the book, it's it's bird flu and uh, the mortality rate from bird flu is anywhere from 60 to 80 percent. You know, the, the death toll would have been devastating. So the optimistic thing to take from the book is that it could all have been so much worse. Now that is uh, spoken like a crime writer right there. <laughs> when you can look at as as much death and destruction as you present, you was like, well, there could have been more. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, always. Oh, that was great. I'm glad uh, Peter was able to figure out the time zones with me to coordinate for our talk uh, all the way from France. And oh, don't you just love uh, that thick French accent? It's just lovely. Well, next up is Jill Orr. Jill writes a series of humorous mysteries starring Riley Ellison in the small town of Tuttle Corner, Virginia. The fourth in the series, The Full Scoop, is out now. And Jill and I had a great talk about the lighter side of death and murder. I have to tell you, I um, am so happy to have found your podcast because it's been my company while I like go on runs in the morning. Oh, and nice. I thought like it would be not as good as music to keep me going, but it actually like makes the time go by so fast. And so it's made exercise less terrible, which is a good thing. <laughs> well, that's lovely to hear. Thank you. <laughs> you. You can put that like, you know, as a blurb, makes exercise yeah, right. less terrible. <laughs> <laughs> So mixing humor and murder is not necessarily a new thing, but I I know for me, when I tend to get some humor in my books, it's very, very dark humor. So I want to know, how do you balance genuine, lighthearted humor with the darkness of death and murder? (laughs) Uh, Well, that's a good question. It's funny. I think all writers have, you know, kind of their voice. 
not that we can't control it, but it's kind of, you know, inherent to who we are as writers. And I think that my voice is just, it just always seems to go toward the light and go toward the humorous side of things. Like, I don't think I could write a dark, you know, twisty thriller if I wanted to. For some reason, everything <laughs> I write just kind of comes out, you know, on the lighter end of the spectrum. So um, maybe not so much a conscious choice as just how I am. <laughs> so like uh, around the house and your family, are you the funny one? Oh, God, no, 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 <laughs> no. I I mean, my, my husband is actually like, like, that's his thing. He's really funny and he's kind of known for it. And so when we meet people... I have actually had someone ask if he helps make my books funny, (laughs) which, you know, the answer is no, he does not. But yes, I'm definitely like the mean one. I'm like the, the not fun parent for sure. Now, have your kids read your books though? You know, they have. Um, so the when The Good Byline, which is the first in the series, came out, my daughter was in seventh grade. And so it's, you know, there's nothing in there that a seventh grader couldn't read. So, yeah, she she read them and then a bunch of her friends read them. But now were they surprised? Were they like, Mom, you're funny. Uh, yes, I think they were. I think they definitely, that was not, you know, and I think actually, I I don't know, I'm probably insulting myself, but I think a lot of people are kind of surprised because I don't know, I I think I need um, revision to be funny. So I'm not, you know, particularly funny in conversation. But like, when I sit down and Uh try to write, I have to like revise and, you know, try this word out, try that joke out. And um, so I definitely think I'm you know, I hope anyway, I'm more humorous on the page than I am in real life. <laughs> now, so when you're working on a series like this, I mean, creating a character like Riley is obviously very important. She's going to ground the whole thing and we have to love her and want to follow her for multiple books. But at the same time, were you just as obsessed during that first book of creating the town of Tuttle Corner? Because it seems to me like the the best humorous mysteries also do have sort of that quirky town and then you have to populate that with all of its denizens. Was that sort of on equal weight as, as your main character? Yes, 100%. I, I think that you're, you, you hit it exactly right there. I think people pick up these sort of books because, particularly a series, because they like, they want that full sense of, of you know, not just getting to know the character and following the character's story, but where the character lives. And and like you said, the quirky cast of neighbors and, you know, and friends that, that populate the story, I think is super important to these kinds of books. And it's also as a writer, it's, it's kind of a joy to create that. It's, it's really fun because you can be kind of silly and you can kind of imagine what a, you know, cause my town that I, you know, set the story in is fictional. So I, I got to just make it all up, which was kind of fun. Right. That's, that's the best. And then no one can accuse you of uh, writing right. a thinly veiled version of them, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, so now you're you're on book four uh, of your series, uh, The Full Scoop. And how, over these four books, has Riley changed to you in, in unexpected ways? Well, first of all, I'll tell you, I'm not someone who plots. Like I oh. don't plot out anything. I don't outline. I, I'm the, the worst in that regard for sure. So <laughs> <laughs> it's really, it's not efficient. I'll tell you that. But in answer to your question, everything about these books has surprised me because I really didn't know where the story was going to go. I mean, I start each book with a crime and most of the time I don't know who committed it. And I just kind of let the characters walk around. I follow them. You know, I, I I always feel like I'm kind of just transcribing what they're doing and saying in my head. 
So I genuinely feel surprised by almost everything that's happened in the series. Wow. I don't know if I would end up with a book that's, you know, 300,000 words because I, I was just <laughs> following too many tangents. Or... Yeah, there's a lot of editing. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not efficient. You know, one thing I will say is I when I hear from readers, I don't hear from a lot of people who say, oh, I totally knew who the bad guy was. And oh, and I good. think, yeah, I think maybe that maybe that's because I didn't even know who the bad guy was, you know. <laughs> So I couldn't give it away. <laughs> you can't accidentally show your hand in chapter two. Right. <laughs> well, you know, here's something I've, I've actually, I, I can't believe I've never asked this of a, a writer who does not outline, but I, like, is that the way you are in the rest of your life? Are you someone who just sort of wings it in on your day to day? But I mean, you've got like, you know, you have two yeah. kids, right? I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to wing life with, with that kind of responsibility. Right. Yes. And I really don't recommend it. Uh, although it is how I do it. And I will tell you, I am the, I am the person I have never probably never done anything the same way twice. Like I don't put my keys down in the same spot twice. I don't ever, I mean, I have no systems. I am not a creature of habit. I just kind of do. And like I said, it's, it's not efficient. Um, it, um, probably, you know, means my blood pressure is fairly low, but also, you know, I'm, I, you know, if I lose my keys, like I'm just, I'm just not going to show up, you know? (laughs) So there's, there's always the danger of never, you know, hearing from me again, if like, you know, I just fall into some hole that I've created in my life. Oh man, you and my wife should get together and hang out and you could (laughs) both just wander around going, has anyone seen my phone? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Well, uh, okay. So you have two two teenagers at home. Uh, is the page a good way to work out uh, some of the rage you feel? You say these <laughs> books start with the crime, so you starting with a dead body that has to be inspired by something, right? It does. It's probably deep down in there somewhere. You know, it's funny. I will say that that having teenagers it has helped me because my character, the main character, is when we start the series, she's twenty four, and um. I have found that, especially as my kids have gotten older, just listening to them talk and talk to their friends and just kind of getting, you know, you know, hearing the language they use and, you know, because it's always just completely pathetic when an old person like me tries to speak like a young person. You know? <laughs> and I think um, that's informed the character, at least. So that's been good. And, you know, I've, I've had some some folks who are actual millennials tell me that Riley is a realistic millennials. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's, it's always good to hear that kind of feedback that you're, you're getting it right. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, there's probably plenty other feedback, you know, <laughs> too, but that, that was the good kind. I, I like to focus on that. <laughs> and what, what made you write someone who was, who was that age and in, in, in that place in her life? To me, that, that time in your life in the early twenties, like, there's so much that you're trying to figure out like who you want to be and, and what you need to do to become that person. And you have just a little bit of confidence in yourself, but you, you want to be good at whatever it is you're going to do already, but you're not because you're 24. And so I just think there's so much inherent um, potential for growth in that time that it seemed to me a good place to plunk someone down and you know watch her develop and grow. Right. And, and that really doesn't change kind of no matter what uh, millennium you're I mean, you know, that, that right. would be the same for uh, if a woman in, in her, who's in her early 20s if she's living in the 1990s or living now. That, that kind of thing never changes, huh? A hundred percent. 
Well, I look, I, I think that you can go full dark if you really want to, Jill. I, I, I think it's in you. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, my, my friend Laura McHugh uh, and I talk about this all the time because her books are super dark. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm kind of on one end and she's on the other. And, and we just laugh about it because she says, she's like, I don't think I could do comedic mysteries. And I was like, well, I don't think I could do dark mysteries. So <laughs> maybe if Laura tutored me, I could. <laughs> But now, do you enjoy reading? Like when you pick up one of Laura's books, are you cringing through the whole thing going, oh my gosh, this is too dark? Or do you enjoy reading that? Oh, I love it. In fact, I read, I read really dark books and I love it. And I've actually even tried, you know, on occasion, I'll admit this, I've tried to write a scene that's really in it. It just comes out bad. It just, it just comes out like (laughs) someone who's trying to sound dark and angsty. Like I just, I just don't have that, you know? (laughs) Well, I, but I think I think you're absolutely right. I, th- I think you you've found your authorial voice, and uh, it's it's disingenuous to to try to fight against that. Yeah, I, th- I think that there's definitely something to be said for that. I mean, I think that as readers, readers are smart. They they know when we're full of BS, and and they are quick to tell you. Yes, they are. <laughs> yes, they are. Yes. So you know, as the Amazon commenter who was guessing that I had no more than a fifth grade education told me, you know, wow. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. well, Jill, I, we appreciate that, uh, that you're keeping it light out there. Cause sometimes I know for me in the last couple of weeks, I've been in a bit of a reading rut. And, and part of that is I keep picking up books that are so dark and I just go, you know, Oh, I just don't know if I've got the, I got this in me right now to, to go to that dark place. I need something that's not going to be, more depressing than uh, the headlines, you know? Yes. No, I definitely, I, in fact, I have, I have described my books before for some people as a palate cleanser, not that you're not going to delve into the serious stuff. And certainly, you know, that's so important, particularly at a time like now, but, but, you know, it's, it's also okay to kind of take a break, you know, maybe read something a little lighter and then dig back in when you're, when you're refreshed. All right, time for my next guest. Uh, let me check the list here. And oh, looky here. Look who's come crawling back. It's S.W. Loudon. I'm not sure if you remember me, but we used to do this podcast together. And I, you know, I have, I have a new book to promote. And I was, I was hoping you would interview me about it. And I, mean, I, uh-huh. I can wash your car or <laughs> you know, walk your dogs, like whatever you need me to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like, I like this. I like this begging. <laughs> Keep it up. Please, Eric, please help me surpass my current high mark of selling 20 books. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. It's, uh, it's Steve. Uh, welcome back to the show, Steve. It's, it's lovely to have you as a guest this time. Yeah, it's great to be back. And, and I'm, I'm incredibly curious what it's going to be like to be in the hot seat being peppered by excellent questions from the man himself, Eric Beatner. Well, you know, before uh, we started recording, you were saying uh, how women should not be writing crime fiction and they should really stick to cookbooks. So do you want to expand on that? Is that something? I, I think you actually misheard me. I said Eric Beatner should not be writing crime fiction. And then I just stopped. <laughs> just period. End of sentence. Why beat around the bush, Eric? I think we got close <laughs> enough and there's been enough distance since the last time we spoke on microphone that I can be honest with you. <laughs> Yeah, I wish I could say you were the first person to to suggest this. All right, well, you you do have another book to promote. This is another uh, power pop novella. Jackson Sharp is back, and he's in more trouble. 
Yeah, I had I had a lot of fun writing the first one. I, I think I found a groove. Uh, I've always written about crime and rock and roll, or a lot of my crime stories have been set in a rock and roll universe. And when I wrote that first book, um, That'll Be the Day of Power Pop Heist, and it came out to around 17,000 words, I found a formula that felt really good to me. I was writing about what I knew and what I was interested in, and I felt like I'd kind of created a lane for myself, but also writing at an interesting length um, that I don't think is very common these days in a lot of crime fiction. Yeah. And I, it, it feels good to me. I, I feel like I can tell a, a very fast paced, compelling story that can be read in a couple hours. Well, and, uh, you know, like the best pop songs are uh, clock ended about two and a half minutes, three minutes. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot of real estate sometimes to make an impact. I, de- I think that's definitely true. And it's something that I thought about in terms of the pacing of these stories. So this new one, Good Girls Don't, uh, now that title is lifted, uh, some might say stolen, uh, from a song by The Knack. Yeah, if you're going to write about power pop, at some point you're going to have to reckon with The Knack. So in the first book, even though it's a Buddy Holly song title, That'll Be The Day was the first song that the Beatles ever recorded um, as the Quarrymen. Um, so that book really grappled with the Beatles, who are the godfathers of uh, pop, power pop music. And then if you're going to ever point somebody who doesn't really know a lot about power pop to a single band or artist, the knack is in, uh, a really natural place to start. Yeah. And, and the connection doesn't stop there with the actual story. The two brothers, the Sharp brothers in the book, are failed power pop musicians who are in, now in their 40s and getting the old band back together and hitting the road and recording uh, against all of the good advice from more sane people. Um, but they end up working with a sort of unscrupulous character who is an amplified collector of power pop and rock and roll artifacts. So he agrees to record their music for them and distribute it and put them on the road. But the trade-off is that they have to go and uh, steal these uh, power pop artifacts that he's after. In this case, He's after the guitar that uh, Doug Figer, the lead singer from The Knack, uh, used to record on The Knack's first album. Now, I, you, you ran down a long list of things that uh, sound like they're lifted exactly from your life, uh, aging rock stars and uh, going against the better advice of the people around them. Are you also a, a collector of uh, music ephemera? Do you, are, I've, I've never uh, known you to, to do that, but I don't know. You might have a stash somewhere in your attic of uh, artifacts and such. Yeah, I, I want to really give you um, some applause and and make sure that I, I highlight for everybody that you just took a dig at me while asking that question. That's some, yeah, really, <laughs> that's some really powerful stuff in, in the seat of power that you currently maintain as the host <laughs> of this podcast. No, I am not a collector. I do have some vinyl. It's actually, these books came about, the idea for these books came about when I was helping co-edit the Go All The Way Power Pop essay collection that I released through Rare Bird with Paul Myers last year. And coming into contact with people in this Power Pop universe, they are a really dedicated group of people who are passionate about power pop music and a lot of them are collectors and because I didn't know a lot about collector culture I found it kind of fascinating and so of course my crime writer mind took that and created an overblown version of what that might look like so go all the way uh, another title that you stole from the uh, song title I, I'm seeing a trend here they are homages Eric I am paying oh. homage homage yeah. homage I don't know how to pronounce that it depends on uh, how snooty you want to be. 
Oh, okay. Homage to <laughs> some of you. my favorite Power Pop bands. <laughs> so, uh, so you're, you're planning on multiple lawsuits? That is what you're saying. Yeah, that is that's my aim here. Okay, just checking. Yeah. So it seems like writing about music, uh, even early on, going back to Bad Citizen Corporation, your first uh, published novel. I mean, this is a way for you to keep connected with music that I know you you love so dearly and you made. I mean, it, that was your career for a long, long time. In doing that, in sort of trying to stay connected through the writing, you've almost gone full circle and reconnected with music even more. Because now I know you, you've been playing drums again. You're putting out records again. It has Has that been a bit of a surprise that it's all sort of flipped on its head and now you're writing to pay the bills to get new drum heads, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. It is a bit of a surprise. I was pretty certain that I was done with music uh, around 2004 or 2005 when I quit the last band that I was signed in you know, that, that had a label deal. But over the last couple of years, I've had the opportunity to reconnect with some really great musicians who I'd played with and recorded with and toured with previously and, you know, agreed to go and give it a try and see what it sounded like. And it was so much fun and felt so natural that I just kind of decided to go with it. And really, I think it's just marrying the two things that have always been most important to me in terms of. Uh, creativity, which is I love to write and I love to play music. And right now, those two things are just very obviously connected and it and it feels good. And, and I'll continue to do it for as long as it feels good. Well, in, in addition to, you know, these power pop novellas and your full novels that all had uh, music adjacent to uh, music or really as a centerpiece, I guess, to a lot of them, you've uh, really upped your game in, in the nonfiction. You mentioned Go All the Way, uh, the Power Pop essay collection. Uh, you've been doing a lot more interviews. You've been talking with uh, you know some of the Power Pop heroes that you have. I mean, is that how long until we get to like a full biography or something out of you? It's something I'm definitely considering. I think that if I was going to write a bio or co-write somebody's autobiography or get involved in that way, I would have to be a really big fan of the band. I don't think that I could do it as a ghostwriter in a sort of mercenary fa uh, fashion, because I think that right now it's still very much about my own musical passion and very much about my own uh, fandom when it comes to certain bands and certain kinds of music. Right. Well, do you do you have a wish list? Who would be your dream uh, subject to cover? That's interesting. I'm not sure. You know, I mean, I think, look, the, the one that's obvious to me has already been done to death and been done so well that it doesn't need to be done anymore. But I would always love to write about the replacements and or any of the Minneapolis punk and post-punk bands from the 80s, Husker Du, Soul Asylum, any of those kind of bands, because they were so key to my formation in high school and growing up and my understanding of what alternative rock was. Well, you know, I've there's been times that I've tried to bring in sort of my musical past into some stories too, mostly in short stories, uh, including one that I know you and I are both in a brand new anthology that is based in in rock and roll and features both noir crime stories and some horror stories all based in rock and roll. Why don't you tell us about uh, your story that's in that 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 we that we're both in. This is a fun collection. Yeah, uh 10th Rule Books put out a collection that's called Rock and Noirer which is incredibly hard to pronounce. I'm not even sure I'm saying it right, but it, <laughs> it tries to combine rock and roll and noir and horror. So it's rock and noir. Uh, the story that I submitted is actually the very first short story I ever got accepted anywhere. It was 
accepted by Tom Pitts, the amazing crime author. And I submitted a short story called Deadbeats, and it was the very first short story I submitted, and it got accepted. And I was kind of over the moon, and it naturally is about a rock band on the road that moonlights uh, as serial killers. Nice. Yeah. What was your story about? Uh, my story was about a rock band that was on the road. <laughs> uh, the drummer's name was Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. And the one national tour that my old band did, uh, I know you you put me to shame with how much you toured, but we we had one national tour that was a complete disaster and a total nightmare. And I think I'm still feeling PTSD from it because I wrote a story about a band that was on tour. And the first night of their tour, someone ends up dead in the alley behind the club as they're loading up their equipment and the death and destruction sort of chase them across the country. But with each subsequent murder, the band ends up getting more attention and more popularity. Mm. <laughs> so they, they have to learn to uh, kind of embrace it. Uh, and as we all know, rock music and scandal uh, is a match made in heaven. Very much so. In fact, I'm writing an essay right now um, for a crime website about that exact topic. Well, Rock and Noir is uh, out there, features stories from both Steve and I. Uh, so, I, you know, a good companion piece to go along with Good Girls Don't, and that'll be the day. You can, you can read all three of those books in like a weekend. I do recommend starting with That'll Be the Day because you, you do get the, the basis of uh, the Sharp brothers and, and the mess they get into there. And it sounds like they have not really learned any lessons from that first book. No, I mean, they're low level thieves in their own right. You know, I mean, the first book starts with the older brother getting out of prison. So and because he was stealing guitars. So it's not like they get coerced into doing this. Um, it's in their DNA as well. And I think that between them and the guy who's there. Uh, shady manager. There's a, a lot of adventures that these guys can go on. And, you know, to a degree, it's sort of um, power pop collector porn, because I can go after some of these holy grails uh, that some of these guys would like to get their hands on. All right. Well, uh, I have one last question for you, Steve. Do you miss me? So much. I mean, in a way, I think I wrote this book just as an excuse to th- get back on this podcast <laughs> so that I could reconnect with you. <laughs> well, all right, Steve, uh, it's time for our next segment uh, where I talk to the Malmans. And I know Dan has been reading a certain uh, novelette length power pop book by a Southern California based author. Uh, I guess I should go figure, find out what he thought of this book. If you could ask Dan to connect me to that author, I think we have a lot in common. <laughs> now, don't feel bad if, if, if he pans the book. I'm going to have to keep it in. I, I can't edit these things out just to save your feelings. No, that's okay. You know, any press is good press, Eric. Any any attention, any spotlight I'll take because like I said, I'm just trying to get above that 20 book sold mark. <laughs> and we had a long history of uh, of examples of me not cutting things out to spare your feelings. That that is that that went on for a long time. You left a lot of things in to actually make me look bad. <laughs> well, Dan and Kate Malman, uh, always great to speak with you guys. How are you doing? We're good. We're, we're just solving the world's problems, you know, one book at a time. <laughs> Usually the answer is tacos. <laughs> Side note, I really need the gym to reopen so I can um, get back into my pants. Yeah, I have 100% put on a couple of pounds in the last couple of months. <laughs> There's the, the freshman 15, the quarantine quintuple. 
Because ah. like, it'd be the COVID nineteen. The COVID, yeah, yeah. Oh, they, 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 they put it in the name, so you knew what you were getting. Wow! Look, you just coined a phrase, Case. <laughs> uh, this is going to catch on. Wow. Well, yeah. That's you can you... send your checks to Roseville, Minnesota. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this is a packed episode. We have a lot to discuss, so let's get right to it. And Dan, uh, I just spoke with our old friend, S.W. Loudon. Uh, he is, I, you probably forgot, but he's the guy who used to co-host the show. Sturve um, Stan. Not ringing a bell. Yeah, I didn't think so. He's not very memorable. But he's written a new power pop novella or novelette, really. They're very short, these books. Uh, and I understand that you grabbed a copy of this, and uh, it, it being a short book, it probably doesn't warrant much time on the show. I mean, there's not there's not a lot to discuss. They're 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 tiny. I mean, is it really even worth talking about? Um, I took my copy, and the the table was creaking, so it was uh, just the perfect width to shove under the leg. Yeah, well, it's it, it's a book and a shim all in one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, was was the inside anything uh, worth discussing? I mean, is Steve going to hear this? I doubt it. I don't think he listens to the show anymore. Oh, good, because it was really good. Well, there you go. Moving on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think these these books are good for maybe a palate cleanser, something in between. Are they are they kind of uh, they're like the the after dinner mint of uh, crime literature? I think they're the encore of crime oh. literature, you know, keeping with with the theme. So this is the sequel to that'll be the day. Good girls don't is the name of the book. It's a rock and roll heist story. This book really does in the shortest possible way, scratch all those good itches. Fans of crime fiction, music heads, um, this has got it all. But it's so fast and it's so fun, you're actually learning a little bit about music uh, while you're enjoying all the shoot 'em up stuff. Steve does a lot of name dropping of bands and stuff. Is there anything in there that you uh, then took and searched out and found a, a song that you liked? Uh, well, I did. I mean, good girls don't. I missed a lot of, uh, a lot of the knack. Uh, this album came out in, came out in 79. And so, I mean, I know my Sharona, but while I'm reading it, I pulled up Amazon Music on my phone and I played the album. And um, I've got a newsflash, Good Girls Don't is is one hell of a catchy song. Yes. I don't know if anybody has heard of this new band, The Knack. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a very good album. And 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 as Steve mentioned, it's uh, if you're looking for an entry into like, well, what is Power Pipe you guys keep talking about? That's You could not pick a better entry point than, than that first Knack album. Yeah, I played it. I mean, and it's it's short, it's poppy, it's fun. It's well, it's like this book, but yeah. it, it's absolutely just just a, a high flying, fun caper book. Well, speaking of short, uh, you've also been diving into even shorter than that some short stories by a friend of ours. Absolutely, uh, "Love and Other Criminal Behavior" by Nikki Dolson. Nikki comes with uh, thirteen stories uh, in this collection. So again, a nice, um, easy read, uh, but it's filled with dark, moody stories of uh, love and violence. Um, I really had a good time reading the stories. She has a reoccurring character named Kendra Hayes. I've never been one for, for boxing or MMA uh, type stuff, but Kendra is a lady boxer. And these reoccurring stories, they're not all about Kendra, but the stories that she tells, um, I think she really inhabits that character really well. Um, this is a great read. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. And Kate, uh, you also have been uh, diving into some short stories, uh, short stories that turn out to be very timely. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, in these days of lockdown and quarantine, so uh, what better short stories to read than short stories about lockdown and quarantine? <laughs> so I read uh, Lockdown, the new anthology edited by Nick Kolakowski and Steve Weddle. 
short stories basically about you know a pandemic stories living through the pandemic after the pandemic and it's really interesting to read now that we're three months into this going back and remembering that feeling of claustrophobia when the, the lockdown started a lot of the stories deal with that of people stuck in an apartment together and what does that look like and what happens. Um, one of the stories that was a, a standout for me was by uh, Gemma Amor uh, called The Diamond. And she's a completely new to me writer, which is a great thing about anthologies like this is you get exposed to writers you wouldn't normally read. Yes. Um, and here five roommates and one guy, one of the roommates, ex-girlfriends are stuck in the apartment together because one of the five guys went to just got back from Europe with a little bit of a cold and they all have to go into isolation for for 14 days. Eventually, they find a rare diamond that's been buried into one of the walls, and it becomes oh. the story of obsession. And all of the characters become very obsessed with trying to get uh, possession of the diamond. Um, some of the other standouts was, I'm going to screw this up because I don't speak Spanish. Por si acaso by Hector Acosta. He, it's this group of high school kids who go out and buy all of the, the fast food that they can right before all of the fast food restaurants close. And now they're running a black market of fast food sales. And it's just ingenious. And you're like, yeah, of course a group of high school boys are going to create a black market of fast food food. Right. Totally makes sense. <laughs> now, in reading a collection of stories like this in the middle of a quarantine and a, a lockdown. I mean, is is it overload or was it actually kind of like refreshing to get this sort of fictional, um, you know, sometimes over the top take on on things and and embrace the darkness? I guess. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think some of it got really close to home, and you're like, "Yep, I know exactly what it feels like to have to go out and like watch people hoarding toilet paper." <laughs> um, and just and and then you remember like how absurd things felt just three months ago. But then there were some stories that the the authors took a little bit of a different bend to the virus. They get into a little, you know, there might be a werewolf or a zombie at some point. <laughs> so I mean, there's, there's a good balance to that. Well, excellent, guys. Uh, I think in times like this, when we're, we are stuck inside, and I've heard from a lot of people that reading has been difficult, you know, hard to focus. There's so much going on. There's so many distractions. I mean, I think short might be the way for a lot of people to go because you can get the thing you love about reading, but you're not fully committed and and, it, and you're not having to devote so much of your brain when it's being attacked from all other angles <laughs> for space. So I, I think shorts is a, a good tip in, in times of quarantine. I agree. I've actually put down a couple, couple books lately by like my go-to authors because I just don't have the attention span. Well, I mean, you're getting older too, Dan. You know, if my back didn't hurt so bad, I'd come right over there. <laughs> there you go. And with your back, you shouldn't be picking up a book that's more than 300 pages. <laughs> Nothing more than a, what, novelettes for you. Novelettes yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, pamphlets for the AARP. <laughs> you're cruising for it, man. <laughs> I am also older than you, so yeah, yeah. I should not be throwing stones. <laughs> Just small stones, not small very big stones. ones. I, I remember that Knack album in 1979. <laughs> okay, well, another episode down. 
Thanks to three great authors for joining me, and I'll have another episode out soon. There's so many writers I want to talk to, I keep adding extra episodes. I hope you don't mind. If you do, or if you have anything else to say about the show, find me on Twitter at WriterTypes, and you can catch up with the past shows at WriterTypesPodcast.com. And if you subscribe, you can get the shows delivered right to you, no matter how much I mess with the schedule. So see you next time, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.